0: Welcome to the ninth episode of the Dumbarton Oaks Byzantine Podcast Series. I am Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Program Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks, from October 2018 to August 2021. This is our last podcast of the first season, and it is a pleasure and an honor to be joined today by Matthew Crawford.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Crawford.
0: And Brad Boswell. Hi, I'm Brad Boswell. We will be discussing... Emperor and Galilean, an oversized 1873 historical play by Henrik Ibsen in two parts and ten acts, which has at its epicenter the Byzantine emperor Julian, who reigned from 361 to 363 Common Era, also known as Julian the Apostate. Matthew R. Crawford is an associate professor at Australian Catholic University, where he serves as director of the program in Biblical and Early Christian Studies in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry. He is the author of numerous articles and two books, most recently, The Eusebian Canon Tables, Ordering Textual Knowledge in Late Antiquity, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. He is currently engaged in a joint project to produce the first ever English translation of Cyril of Alexandria's Treatise Against Julian, for which he received a Discovery Early Career Researcher Award from the Australian Research Council. Brad Boswell received his PhD in early Christianity from Duke University's graduate program in religion in 2021. He is currently an associate in research at Duke Divinity School. His current book project explores the exegetical, theological, and philosophical aspects of Christian pagan polemics in Cyril of Alexandria's Against Julian and the eponymous Emperor Julian the Apostates Against the Galileans. He has articles on Julian and Cyril forthcoming in the Journal of Early Christian Studies and Studia Patristica. Our guests will be discussing how familiar was Ibsen with the historical sources? Has he altered the facts? For instance, was Julian as rigid and arrogant according to the sources as he is presented, especially in part two, where he is on the imperial throne? After studying Julian in the historical record, what is it like reading Ibsen's version of Julian? Are there any connections between Emperor and Galilean and the realistic plays that followed, which made Ibsen the first playwright ever to be translated in multiple languages during his lifetime? What is the effect of the play on the 21st century reader? Today, we will be discussing Emperor and Galilean, a monumental historical tragedy by Henrik Ibsen with Matt Crawford and Brad Boswell. Ibsen, 1828-1906 was a stellar pioneer of modernism in the European theater with a lasting impact throughout the 20th and 21st century. He is the first playwright ever who achieved international fame during his lifetime despite the fact that he wrote in Norwegian a language spoken by 1.4 million people in Ibsen's lifetime. He spent 27 years living in Italy and Germany from 1864 to 1891, where he composed both epic plays like Brand and Pergint, as well as path-breaking bourgeois dramas with marital hardships at their epicenter. His plays, especially the realistic ones, were translated to more than 15 languages before his death in 1906 and have mesmerized audiences globally ever since, having been translated into 80 languages. Although theater goers are very familiar with A Doll's House, Ghosts, An Enemy of the People, The Wild Duck, or Hedda Gabler, Ibsen's favorite play, his cardinal work, as he called it, was Emperor and Galilean, a historical tragedy in two parts, written between 1871 and 1873, while he spent a few years before doing historical research and acquainting himself with the 4th century AD and the political tribulations of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, I would like to invite Matt and Brad to give us a summary of the two parts of the play.
2: Yeah, let me first say thank you just to Anna and Judy for inviting us. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Can I say a quick word about where this started first, background for our audience? So Matt and I were at Dumbarton Oaks in the fall of 2019, so the last full semester before the COVID-19 pandemic, and we were there to be working together. I was working on my dissertation, Matt was on my committee, my external reader in from Australia, and we were working on the text by the Bishop Cyril of Alexandria from the Fifth century, a Christian bishop. And he had written this long, long polemical refutation of Emperor Julian, sometimes known as Julian the Apostate. So we were there to work on Cyril's text. But of course, intertwined in this refutation is, of course, trying to understand Julian and what he was about. And working with Anna was she realized, well, there's this incredible play that Heinrich Ibsen had written about Julian. So we decided to get together and read the play over this semester. And it was really a wonderful conversation putting the historical studies that we were doing, the literary studies from late antiquity in conversation with Anna's work on Ibsen. So anyways, all that to say that that's behind this. Uh, and thank you, Anna, for bringing that together firsthand and for coming back around to the podcast. That's uh, been a lot of fun. So to Emperor and Galilean, maybe I'll do the first five, first five acts. So there's 10 total. It's a, quite a lengthy play. The first five goes under the title of Caesar's Apostasy. Uh, so there's the uh, Julian the Apostate, as he's recorded to much of history. It begins with Julian in Constantinople at Easter uh, and then progresses over these five acts through his itinerancy through many parts of the empire studying trying to find his place sort of on the edges to start with of the imperial court he's a in Ibsen's portrayal a fairly zealous and authentic Christian to start with, but he also is dissatisfied with different pieces of the way that Christianity and the empire are coming together. And he ends up studying in, in a variety of places, again, Athens, Ephesus, and is increasingly interested in several of the students of Neoplatonism. Nibson doesn't name it as such, but compared to the, the historical record, there's a lot of Plotinus and especially Iamblichus of Calchus. And so as he's passing through these many stages of growth and of understanding, he's becoming less and less satisfied with Christianity. This intensifies when he becomes Caesar. He's made Constantius, the emperor Constantius is Caesar, and he's sent to the Western frontier to Gaul to put down some of the rebellions along the border there. And he succeeds and sort of against all odds. And it's increasingly apparent that he was sent there to probably to fail, uh, maybe to accomplish some things, but he was really set up in a lot of ways to fail. But the more successful he is, the more he evokes both jealousy and worry from Constantius, the emperor. And so we have this sort of looming crisis on the political front, and it's mirrored by this sort of internal shifts and in even a crisis at several points for Julian. Religiously, with respect to Christianity, there's all kinds of signs that are trying to be interpreted. We should, we should come back to that. And it doesn't quite conclude. So act four just to get back into the flow of the play act four we have this famous moment from history from the historical record where julian is acclaimed by his troops as emperor in gaul he has all these victories and there's there's these several reasons that the troops become dissatisfied with constantius who's off in the east fighting on the persian frontier and they say well we're going to make julian also emperor and so this creates a crisis point of sorts Julian's having to decide: is he going? Is he going to accept this? How is he going to angle it? Because this is, in some ways, open rebellion against Constantius. So that's Act Four of Five in these first five acts, and then Act Five culminates again. We've had sort of the political web set. Five culminates back in the religious side. So Julian is is in some ways deciding: is he going to? fully commit to this rival system, this rival way of seeing the world, understanding his place with respect to the gods, or is he going to somehow try and um, incorporate Christianity and, and Roman Empire? And it ends in this quite dramatic climax where they, they read like a rite of initiation in one of the ancient mystery cults, but it's his way of casting off the baptism of his youth, of embracing this this, this other trajectory and this other destiny that he's come to believe he has for the empire. So that's the first five. Matt, do you want to take the next five and explain how it develops from there?
1: yeah so the second play is titled emperor julian so at this point julian is emperor of the roman empire act one opens with julian in constantinople the capital city in the east standing um, by the water as constantius's coffin the former emperor's coffin is being brought into the city and he's there he's in he's in mourning for the now deceased emperor which is a great thing for him of course because he became sole emperor without having to fight the bloody civil war that was in the offing so begins with, with Julian in Constantinople, then transitions to the palace. You get a sense in Act 1 of Julian interacting with his courtiers and advisors, and he then begins to enact this program to restore traditional Greco-Roman religious practice, what we might call quote-unquote paganism, um, for lack of a, a better term. So, so Julian, even there, um, as he's receiving Constantius's coffin, begins sacrificing to the gods and um, traditional. Manner. Later on in Act One, he engages in a Dionysian procession. But what you see really quickly in Act One is Julian being dissatisfied with this new course. So he's essentially finally got what he wanted, both the empire and freedom to grace the religious use that he wants to, but it's just not satisfying to him at all. And, and essentially what the second play, The Last Five Act, is, amounts to is Julian sort of slowly unraveling uh, to the point of even losing sanity by the end of the play. So he, he's not happy with the Dionysian procession, and by the end of Act One, he even decides to leave Constance because it's sort of not what he thought it would be. So in act two, he then, like the historical Julian, transitions to the city of Antioch, where he intends to make his base going forward. The scene, the act opens again in sort of Julian and having success as a judge in Antioch, acting as the emperor should. But again, quickly things begin to unravel. So um, you have Gregory of Nazianzus shows up as a sort of ambassador for a group of Christians who are not happy with Julian's new religious program and are beginning to react and even to react with violence against that. As that uh, act moves on, there begins to be violence and unrest even in the city of Antioch itself between Christians and um, non-Christians. And then an important um, detail at this point is that among those Christians in Antioch is someone by the name of Agathon from earlier in the play who now returns, a childhood friend of Julian who shows back up in Antioch at this point. And then act two ends with this climactic moment where Julian Is preparing to sacrifice in the Temple of Apollo in Daphne on the outskirts of Antioch. And as he does so, a slight departure from the historical. Record, but as he does so, an aged Christian bishop shows up and pronounces a woe upon him. And as a result, the entire temple um, falls to ruins right there before Julian. And Julian's response is to turn right around and say, Well, then I'm going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to prove that Jesus was wrong. And so, what you begin to see from this point on is an increasing conflict between Julian and, and Jesus specifically. It really is Christ is in his sights as the one that is the source of his frustration. And this just becomes more and more apparent. So in Act 3, there's more and more unrest in Antioch, not just with Christians, but with Libanius and the city council. Things are, again, spinning out of control for um, Julian. By the end of Act 3, he's really distraught. The rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem has come to naught and isn't going forward. And um, at the end of Act 3, he has another conversation with his kind of advisor, Maximus the Mystic. And in response to these repeated failures, decides to invade Persia, despite his earlier plans not to do so. So in Act 4, we find Julian in Persia. Again, things are going well at first. Julian, as he's having some success, is also having flights of grandeur to the point of even embracing his own identity as being somehow divine. Importantly, I think in Act 4, kind of along the way to Persia, there's this detour through this territory where, lo and behold, the Christians, Basil and Macrina, brother and sister, have a dwelling, a sort of ascetic community, and Julian decides to um, take them captive with him and carry them with him um, to Persia, which is an interesting touch to the play that maybe, maybe we'll come back to. But then, And again, by the end of Act 4, things are just not going well for Julian. He's burning the ships. And as he does so, I'm almost in a divine-like sort of manic frenzy commanding the winds to come up and and cause the flames to to grow as the ships burn, even as he finds out that the intelligence that he was relying on that made that seem like a good course of action was, in fact, entirely false. And he's been dreadfully fooled by the Persians. And so things are not going as well for him as he seems. So then in Act 5, again, things are, are really spinning out of control at this point. Julian is suicidal. He's having visions. We can't quite tell whether they're real or simply in his own mind. And then Agathon, the childhood friend who had showed up in Antioch, the Christian, in fact, is among the Christian soldiers in Julian's army. And in the midst of pitched battle at daybreak, where against between the Persians and the Romans, Agathon takes the opportunity to thrust a spear in Julian's side, Um, none other than the spear with which Christ himself was stabbed by the soldier. So a nice poetic touch there. And then the last scene where the play ends is we have Julian on his deathbed, surrounded by close friends and, and advisors, and, and Julian dies, and that's, that's where the play ends.
0: Thank you very much for uh, the summary of this uh, huge play. Now, Julian, as a historical character, was rather trendy in the 19th century, and several other plays were inspired by his life. And despite the fact that this is the least, one of the least staged Ibsen plays, in this podcast today, we will be discussing the historical accuracy, the interpretation of the sources by Ibsen, the particular light he's shedding on Julian and the points of contact between this play and his internationally acclaimed realistic plays. So I would like to start with a question now that we have an idea about the content. What is based on historical evidence and what is fiction in this play?
2: Yeah, thanks, Anna. That's a that's a fantastic question. The historical Julian, we, we actually have a remarkable amount of evidence about him both from his own pen quite a few orations and letters have survived that he himself wrote but then there's also several contemporary or near contemporary accounts and one of the remarkable things for me reading Ibsen's play and then going to look at some of the historical record that we have about Julian is how how informed Ibsen was with a wide variety of these sources both from Julian himself and from others just to give one example one of the most full sources that we We have about Julian's life is from the historian Ammianus Marcellinus, who wrote a long history, part of it's been lost, but these sort of central sections on Julian spanning several books have survived. And reading Ammianus beside Ibsen was just a lot of fun because Ibsen's done a lot more than just pick up the general contours of of Julian's life. He's done a lot more than just pick up the he was in Constantinople and Athens and Ephesus. He's actually read very carefully what, what Ammianus is doing little little details so i mentioned earlier that one of the fun things about the plays is is a lot of the signs that show up so according to Ammianus. There's this moment where Julian gets word, partially this is while he's deciding what is he going to do in terms of trying to move up the empire to become emperor. He, there's these two signs about a shield breaking in a hand and then about someone trying to get onto a horse and falling off. And he interprets these as signs that basically he's he's sort of destined, that his his progress is guaranteed towards emperor. So that's in an, that's an Ammianus. And as you're reading along in Ibsen, well, what do you know? There are these moments where Julian recounts hearing these signs. So, so he really, in a lot of ways, Ibsen gets into granular detail of some of the re- historical record. So that's fun both to see how informed he is. It's also fun to see, you asked, what, what's fiction? It's also the extent to which he really knew Ammianus and and some of these other sources really allows to bring into relief what Ibsen has done creatively, right? So if you can track all these places that he has followed or at least used creatively, i you can then also see where he's gone off book. So Matt has already given one example of Basil and Macrina showing up late in the play. So there's fun questions we could, we could ask about why is Ibsen does that do that? What's what role do they play? You know, another question that we should probably get into at some point is Julian's reasons for his do we call it conversion? Or right, this is a historical question. How do we talk about Julian's early life, raised as a Christian, and then his eventual writings? But Ibsen has got a lot of explanation about in, in Julian's mind about what's going on with himself. Um, so there's a lot of uh, improvisation. Let's maybe say rather than even fiction, improvisation that I- Ibsen has. The, the other place that I'll point to, and then I'll stop talking. Let let Matt get in here. Where Ibsen has has been creative is in a lot of the. There's a lot of sort of classic historical quandaries about what went on with Julian. So one of them is his acclamation as emperor in Gaul. There are questions about the extent to which he was perhaps, his machinations are behind it. He's he's striving for this. There are questions about whether as a contemplative philosopher be. he sort of had this forced on him and he took it up out of a sense of duty. And so Ibsen has his own way of explaining and reconciling that. On the final campaign in Persia, there's this classic problem of Julian does this to so a lot of so sort of historical eyes, just crazy thing of burning his whole fleet of ships, which he's been bringing up the river with supplies as he's on this assault. And so this is this question, why in the world would you do that? It ends up contributing to the utter disaster of this campaign, right? Not only does Julian die at the end, the Roman Empire has to cede huge swaths of land to Persia in order to negotiate a kind of peace and to let the, the remaining parts of the army retreat after Julian's died. And there's there's different sort of significant. Suggestions in the historical record about why this happened. And Ibsen seems to have incorporated several of those. Um, but he's but he's also improvising and providing this really creative and interesting explanation for well, why would someone like Julian, given the kind of character he is, the kind of aspirations he has, why why would he do this? I'll stop there and let let Matt Matt get in here.
1: Yeah, I think
2: Brad's absolutely right. I mean, one of the impressive things about reading the play
1: is the degree to which Ibsen is drawing on actual historical material. And it's not clear, at least it's not clear to me, to what degree he's actually read these sources or is he perhaps relying on other mediating sources um, other modern literature that's passed this along to him. But nonetheless, if you trace kind of the stories and some of the sayings that he includes, Back to their, their ancient sources, it's clear that he's drawing upon um, the 5th century church historians, so Sozomen, Socrates, Refinus even. It seems that he's drawing upon a Eunapius, who is a, a very influential late 4th, early 5th century Neoplatonic biographer who wrote a, a large collection of Neoplatonic biographies. And Ibsen seems to be drawing on him. Ammianus, of course, as Brad has already said, but at least two other sources that I'd mention or highlight here. One is Libanius, who is a close friend of Julian in the time in Antioch, or a confidant at least. And also Julian's own writings. I mean, there are passages in the play where Ibsen seems to be channeling Julian's own words pretty pretty accurately, in in fact. So there's real grounding in the ancient sources and, and Ibsen's doing creative work with them. Sometimes there's, of course, I guess, simplification, which is just necessary for the transference to this new format. So, for example, Ibsen has Julian going from Constantinople to Athens to Ephesus and then on to Gaul. And instead, his route seemed to have been from Pergamum to Ephesus, probably to Milan, then to... Athens, then to Gauls. It's a bit more complicated, and he's changing some of the some of the route, and then conflating some figures as well. So, Libanius in the play shows up early in Julian's life, not as an orator as we as scholars tend to know him today, but as a philosopher instead. And he sort of is an amalgamation of two philosophers that Julian in the historical record was studying within Pergamum before then going on to, Ma- to Ephesus to meet Maximus. But in the play, all of this happens in Athens with respect to Libanius instead. So, so there's some conflation and simplification that's going on. But nonetheless, I think it's impressive just how much Ibsen is aware of the sources and deploying them in a, in a really creative and, and fun and insightful way.
0: Great. I mean, out of curiosity, you described part two before, and in part two, he's presented more and more as rigid and arrogant. So I was wondering, is this in the sources or did Ibsen concoct this uh, version of Julian?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And in some ways, I think an open question, even to the historical record, this is the kind of thing that has made Julian perennially such a fascinating character. I mean, you can trace, there's scholars who have traced the sort of afterlives of Julian basically from from the moment he died up until the, the present day, he inspires all these kinds of questions. So I, I think there's evidence in the historical record that Ibsen's conceivably building on for that kind of portrayal. So to go back to Amianus, he tries to have a sort of even hand when he's dealing with not just Julian, but with other emperor figures throughout the throughout his history. And he says, well, here's their good things and here's their bad things. And yeah, he, he says a few things that would probably, could easily be sort of strung together to, to match this portrayal that, that Ibsen has. But on the other hand, I mean, one of the interesting things, even about Ammianus and, and studies of him over the last couple of decades, is he's writing a history, but it's still an act of, of backward-looking rhetorical construction. And he has he has his own interests. You know, he's, he's writing after Julian has died and after this attempt at a sort of turning back of the empire, at least in its religious and philosophical underpinnings. He's writing after that's happened and it has failed pretty clearly after Julian is dead. So this is, again, a lot of the questions that a figure like Julian inspires. I think Ibsen gives a compelling uh, sort of version or, or plausible version of it. Adjudicating the historical data is it's, it's part of what makes it fun to, to study Julian.
1: Yeah, I I could come in there and add just a couple of things. I think if we were wanting to be as fair as possible to Julian, we'd have to point out that Ibsen's leaving out some important points towards the end. So for example, Julian definitely does have early on a significant degree of military success in the Persian invasion, captures a number of cities and fortresses, even has a successful assault on the Persian capital itself. Ibsen leaves that out entirely. And there's also, just to be clear, no clear evidence that Julian lost his mind at the end to the degree um, to which Ibsen portrays him. So I don't think that's fair to Julian as like a reading of the sources. It's a creative reading, of course, and makes for good drama. So I understand why Ibsen did it. But I think in terms of the drama or the, the narrative of the play, on to your question, part of what's going on in that last act is a continuation of a theme you see early on, just in increasingly intensified. And that is the degree to which Julian seems to be unable to control the circumstances in which he's operating. So, so part of what's, I mean, literally driving him mad in those last acts is the fact that so many people are not on board with this religious reform program. So he's facing serious opposition from Christian, and you might call them fanatics or zealots or people who are happy to be martyred for their faith. And, and he just can't comprehend this, or, or he does comprehend it and, and he hates it, which is perhaps, I mean, maybe that's the better description. So so he's he's running out of options increasingly increasingly so um, as the play moves along. And I think that's maybe a slightly more sympathetic way of presenting the kind of arrogant Julian towards the end of the play, though there's no denying that it reaches, I mean, really absurd heights. He, towards the end, he's definitely declaring himself to be a god. And as I said earlier, commanding the wind to obey him in a manner not unlike Christ himself. So he's definitely got grandiose visions. But for Julian, this is all a response to the circumstances and, and opposition that he's faced that's really reducing the options that he has for him for acting in the play.
2: So let's, let's dig into one of these themes that, have, that plays between Ibsen's version and sort of the historical record. So, so Matt and I have, while working, talked about this, but I'd love for you to tell us a little bit, Matt, about the Julian of the play and the Julian of history and the rejection of Christianity. Again, it's very clear in the play, Ibsen develops this line about why Julian has come to this point and turns his, turns his back, I mean, however you want to describe it, on Christianity. And how does that relate to the, to the kinds of objections that the historical Julian gives in the record? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it
1: highlights one of the places where most clearly you see Ibsen's 19th century concerns coming through. So I think the best way of answering the question is to consider what the Christianity is that the Julian of the play is reacting to. And it's definitely a Christianity of law, of commands, of retribution, of constraining freedom. I mean, there's one point at the play where Julian says that Christianity doesn't give a man elbow room to act. It sort of is constantly constraining what you can do. And, And in contrast, what the Julian of the play sees, again, quote unquote, paganism to be is an embrace of life and beauty and the goodness of the world in stark contrast to this kind of ascetic renunciation that he sees in Christianity which is just just a denial of every bit of that. And so I think part of what we see there that's important to recognize is the highly personal nature of this question for the Julian of the play. And I think that that is evident in our historical sources. But maybe this is one of the points where Ibsen's drama, his fiction, helps us recognize perhaps some of the humanity of our historical figures that we might too easily overlook. I mean, a passage, a passage on this point that I thought I'm, I might read that I think highlights this contrast. Well, this is in the first half of the play, in a a dialogue between Maximus, the mystic, and Julian. And Julian says, "'My whole youth has been one long dread, of the emperor and of Christ. Oh, he is terrible, that mysterious, that merciless god-man. At every turn, wheresoever I wish to go, he met me, stark and stern, with his unconditional, inexorable commands.' Then Maximus um, asks a question, and and Julian uh, comes back with, Always thou shalt, if my soul gathered itself up in one gnawing and consuming hate towards the murderer of my kin, that's Constantius, the other emperor, what does Christianity say? Julian says, love thine enemy. If my mind, a thirst for beauty, long for scenes and rites from the bygone world of Greece, Christianity swooped down on me with its seek the one thing needful. If I felt the sweet lusts of the flesh towards this or that, The prince of renunciation terrified me with his, kill the body that the soul may live. All that is human has become unlawful since the day when the seer of Galilee became ruler of the world. Through him, life has become death, love and hatred, both are sins." I think that captures this kind of contrast between renunciation of of life and beauty. And on the one hand, that Julian sees in Christianity and the joy or embrace of life and pleasure and the goodness of the world that he sees in in the contrast. So for the Julian of the play, this is what's motivating him. But again, I think a nice personal touch, even in the passage that I just read, is Julian refers to the the murder of his family, which is absolutely an important part of the historical record. Um, Julian, when he's, still a child. The majority of his uh, male members of his family are murdered, all except for him and his brother, half-brother Gallus. And so it's hard not to think that that event, even though he was so young, must not have played into his own personal development and eventual rejection of Christianity, though he never quite couches it in those terms. Ibsen's probably recognizing something that's probably a part of what was going on with the historical Julian and not just the Julian of the play.
0: Yes, and we should say here that all the excerpts that we are reading are from the old William Archer translation because we found it easy and handy to use. We did not use a contemporary translation, hence uh, the English uh, can sound a little antiquated at times. So, yes.
1: Yeah. So uh, another question to throw back to you, Brad, I mean, you've already mentioned signs and the ambiguity of signs in the play. I wondered if you wanted to expound a bit more on that, the way in which the ambiguity of signs plays into the development of the plot and how that relates to the historical sources as well.
2: Yeah, that's another another great question. A- another place where I'm a- again impressed, I think, with with Ibsen because he's he's taken what is a part of the the history of, about Julian and in, and um, in Ammianus and in others, and he's really turned it to fantastic dramatic effect. You know, the opening scene, Agathon, whom Matt mentioned, as a childhood friend of Julian, shows up, and he's hastened to Constantinople, and it takes a while for this to come out, but it's because he's had a vision, he's had a he's had a dream, and they're talking about, oh, do you still you know is this accurate can we you know do we believe dreams well yes well so here's the dream and then it's not clear there's a sort of a robed figure Julian takes it as clear. Uh, well, or he at least he seems to take it as clear, but he wants to sort of resist. It seems like, no, that can't be right. Remember, this is in the play, still the very devoted Christian Julian, but there's something about it that's potentially pointing away. And then of course, Agathon, is, as Matt mentioned at the end in the play, is the one that, that kills Julian. So this is fun, both in terms of the way that Ibsen has turned this these details from the history to, to very useful and effective dramatic effect. It's also fun to read, just in light of the wider philosophical background, I mean, so Iamblichus of Calchas, the Neoplatonist philosopher, isn't mentioned in the play, but he was a huge influence on Julian. And he's known as the, the Neoplatonist who really defended a kind of highly theorized, but highly... Physical, highly material form of of ritual and practice to so divination through through sacrifices, through reading the stars, this the whole sort of passel of things you might think of if you think of sort of old Roman pagan religion. Again, for lack of a better way of putting it, Iamblichus is, is the one who really gives a lot of a lot of sort of philosophical rationale for it, and that comes through in some ways in Julian, and it comes through partially in the signs because if you go and read Iamblichus, uh, one of his Most known works is De Mysteries. There's a lot there on how to read signs, and it's sort of vague because these are these are mystery rituals in a lot of ways. He's not laying out how it works, but there's a lot of, you can sort of see when you're reading this issue with interpreting the message of the gods. And so that's, that's there sort of on the background and it's coming forth very clearly all throughout the play. To give maybe one more quick example, Matt mentioned in in the overview of the play, this moment at this temple in Antioch, where the Julian and this priest, this Christian priest face off. And right at the end of their well, conversation putting it too nicely, right their, um, their argument, the temple crashes down. And it's so stark, because this bishop says, ah, God has spoken. And he clearly means right Julian was going to do these rituals, God's not going to let that happen at this temple. Right after that, Julian says, yes, the gods have spoken. This temple was defiled by you Christians and would not let this continue. So the ambiguity there of the sign, it's such a, just literally, it's such a a fantastic and interesting moment, but it's also sort of rooted in some of these larger questions in the history of philosophy as well as just in the history of, of Julian's life himself.
1: Just to tag on a, another another example of that, that I think is delightful, that is a kind of combination of historical material and creative license on the part of Ibsen is as Julian is on his Persian invasion, Maximus is there and is kind of constantly sacrificing and, and seeking for some kind of a sign and nothing's coming for the longest time. And finally, a sign comes in and the sign is that Julian is, is safe. The only danger he has to worry about is the danger in Phrygia. And he thinks that it's the Phrygia in the Roman Empire, of course. Because that's you know the only kind of well-known location with that name. But Ibsen cleverly uses this in the plot because in fact we know from the historical sources, I think in fact from Ammianus, that this is indeed where Julian dies, a place in in Persian territory by the same name. So in the play, when I, a Maximus receives this omen or this message, it gives he and Julian great confidence. And, and this is part of what makes Julian bold to then burn the ships and sort of go forth confidently against the Persians, but in fact, that's precisely what leads to to his downfall because of this ambiguity, because it's a different location as what's meant by the sign than, than what he understood.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Matt, would you like to tell us a few things about your thoughts about the Third Empire? What does Ibsen mean by the Third Empire?
1: I'm, I'm happy to try, but <laughs> I, I want to emphasize that it's hard to pin down and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this question as well. For Maybe it's helpful for listeners to, to know as well. I mean, Ibsen, when he spoke about this play, said that what he was trying to do here was to set forth his positive worldview. So he had been critiqued by his critics for, I guess, for being too negative. And, and this was finally the play where he was going to set forth something, I guess, more prescriptive or constructive, a kind of account of the world. And it's to this concept of the third empire that he pointed. So I think Ibsen at least wants us to think that this is one of the main motifs, maybe even the main theme of the play. We, we may well disagree with him. Um, and in fact, Archer in his introduction to the translation we're using says that the incorporation of this plot element into the play completely ruins the play, <laughs> that it would have been much better um, without it. So maybe, maybe from a, a dramatic criticism perspective, um that's that's correct. But it's it's really intriguing to ponder what um what Ibsen's trying to do with this. I mean, the, the con- concept. It's another instance where you see the distance between the ancient source material and the play. So the notion of the Third Empire certainly isn't something that Julian himself ever talked about or the other ancient sources. It seems to have arisen in medieval Christianity among kind of apocalyptic speculation, and then it had a very long afterlife after that point, What right up to 19th century Germany, and indeed even, even beyond that, after Ibsen's life in, in Europe. So the Third Empire is concept with a long pedigree that Ibsen's aware of and then appropriating and, and putting to his own use. I mean, the way it works out in the play, just I'll give kind of the plot, basic plot maybe, and then we can can look at interpretation a little bit. So in the third scene of the first play, uh, there's this really crucial scene where third act of the first play, that is, there's a crucial scene where Maximus and Julian are having a kind of re- virtual séance perhaps in in Ephesus conjuring up spirits and they think it's the two of them uh, and then they begin the ritual and then all of a sudden there are five of them that are present so so maximus says and julian wants to find out who the other two are so maximus doesn't seem to be able to see or hear these individuals only julian can but maximus can sort of force them to speak and he does so and julian asks them a series of questions that they answer very enigmatically but eventually it becomes clear that the first of these additional figures is cain who of course murdered his brother. Um, The second figure is Judas, who of course was the one who killed Christ. And then when it comes time for the third person to speak, there's a curious silence. And uh, Maximus quickly realizes that this is because there is no fifth person, that the third individual for the third empire is in fact Julian himself. And the implication, of course, is that Julian will suffer the same fate as these previous two figures that have just been revealed. So there's a definite historical progression at work. So there's the first empire, which seems to, for Ibsen's stand and for kind of classical Greece and, and Rome, um, Alexander uh, the Great, for example, at one point seems to be identified as kind of a founder for this first empire. The second empire seems to be the empire of Christ, more or less. And then there's this third empire, which Ibsen says in a kind of Hegelian synthesis isn't merely a negation of the first two, but there's somehow a kind of conflation of them both, though it's not really clear what that means. But Maximus is clear, at least in his criticism of Julian. So late in the play, when Julian's in Antioch facing the failure of his efforts uh, at religious reform, Maximus tells him that his mistake was just trying to return the world back to its first empire, rather than recognizing that that was actually impossible, that um, going backwards isn't possible, you have to move forward. And at that point, Maximus, as they're in Persia, seems to still think that Julian is the one who's about to inaugurate this third empire. But then Julian, of course, dies. But even after Julian's died, I think it's perhaps Maximus's last words of the play is that the third empire is still to come. So Maximus and, and Ibsen leaves you kind of tantalizingly wondering, what is this third empire? And I wonder if it's not exactly this ambiguity of the identification of this is what gives the concept in the play, its potency, that this is why you have to ponder what this means. And it kind of allows the reader to engage in their own process of filling in the gaps and making meaning of it. Um, So it could be adapted to really anyone who imagines that they stand on the verge of some great new momentous development in world history. That seems to be about the degree of the content that we can give it from the play itself. So Anna, since you're, you've, you've done a lot of work on Ibsen in the past, I'd love to hear you talk about what the impact of the play is for someone who's familiar with the rest of Ibsen's corpus, especially the realistic plays. How does this fit into his wider body of work?
0: Yeah, thank you. So when you read Emperor and Galilean, there is no doubt that several broader and more specific themes that one encounters in the realistic plays are traceable in Emperor and Galilean. For instance, from uses and abuses of power, which is a big theme in the play, we find this, for instance, in an enemy of the people. There are big existential dilemmas We find these in Solness. I'm just mentioning some plays, although these themes exist in more than one play. The search for the truth, the hypocrisy of religious people. We find this in ghosts, among other plays. So from bigger themes to smaller themes, like Ibsen's Scorn of Intellectuals, which we see in Little Eolf and Hedda Gabler. The use of letters, There's lots of letters in in Ibsen. For instance, in A Doll's House, all the way to qualities of specific characters like the similarities between Julian and Levborg. Levborg is a a famous, very important character in Hedda Gabler. So all of these examples reveal Ibsen's authentic seal and explain why he considered the play as his most central or vital work. For those of us familiar with his realistic plays, the ten acts of the multitude of characters and situations included in Emperor and Galilean would qualify the play as a depository of material where Ibsen drew from until 1899 when he published his last play, When We Dead Awaken.
2: Thank you, Donna. And yeah, so as we're coming to the end of our time, we thought it might be fun if we each talked for a minute or two about our, our favorite moment in the play. So separate from all of the scholarly questions, this is a this is a play to be watched and appreciated. So what did you all appreciate most at a moment in the play? Yeah, I'm happy to take that one
1: first. I think my answer is a sort of laugh out loud moment, at least for me, it was I mean, Anna mentioned a moment ago some scorn for intellectuals. And I think you see him having a bit of fun at that at, towards the end of the play, where in the final scene, as the Persians have broken into the Roman camp and are, are engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the Roman soldiers there in the very camp. Well, what about these philosophers that Julian's brought along with him on the campaign? These kind of petty intellectuals who aren't used to such um, such violent uh, situations. What are they to do? Well, Ibsen has one of the philosophers running to and fro trying to convince one of the Roman uh, commanders to give him a detachment of soldiers to ensure his safety, because of course, he hasn't finished his world historical work titled On Equanimity and Affliction. So this philosopher is running about, dreadfully worried about his book and the loss of it to the rest of the world should he be killed. And of course, the topic of the book is On Equanimity and Affliction. So it's a kind of delightfully ironic moment that I'm glad Ibsen stuck in.
2: Yeah, I, I love that moment. Also, I, that was a contender for me for favorite moment moment too. Maybe I should go next. If we talk about ending on a light note, mine's not exactly a light note, but maybe Anna can do that. Um, yeah, so if, if I can't pick, because Matt already has this ironic moment with the philosopher, I, th- I think the, the end of part one is this climax that just in terms of all the tensions that Ibsen has been putting into place, all of the conflicts that have been brewing reach this this head, and it's, it's done just in such an incredible way. So this is the moment when it's after Julian has been acclaimed as emperor in Gaul, and he's moved to... Vienna now with the army and the army's all rear and ready to go to finish this process of of placing him on the throne either with Constantius or, or probably against Constantius but Julian still isn't quite sure about what he should be doing what his sort of fate is and so he he goes away from the army for for some time, and they're getting restless. And it it turns out that he's in this—it's like a crypt. And we hear later that it, it must be either the crypt of a church or or underneath or beside a church because Maximus is down in this hole waiting for a word, and Julian is up, sort of talking to him, and he's getting messages from some of his um, some of his generals and some of his associates about all the things that are going on and all of the again the mounting tension. And then Julian himself realizes that this is the moment that he has to to decide where his sort of ultimate allegiances lie. And so he descends, he performs this, this sacrifice of some kind. And, and, and again, he, the blood that of the sacrifice is what washes away the baptism that he's had. And then as he's coming up and out, what's going on in the church is a, is a kind of memorial for Julian's wife, who was killed, probably poisoned by Constantius, and at, at the same time moment there's these miracles reportedly that are happening at the body, people being healed. And so it's this uh, it's this climax and you really get a sense of it's not it's not a, a sense of sort of the direction that Julian's pointing toward and the direction he's pointing away from like one's true and one's false there really is a sense of these competing, deeply competing claims on his life and he has to pick one. And he says at one point, the life or the lie right and he's and he's got to pick. And he makes this decision and as he's coming up out and this is how it concludes and it's just it's such a powerful moment the, the people in the church are saying the Lord's prayer, right? So they're saying the end of the Lord's prayer and Julian in a kind of back and forth way starts to interpose his own things. So he rushes up the steps and he says, the army mind, the treasure mind, the throne mind. And the next line is the choir and the church saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Julian says, mine is the kingdom. And then his one of his associates says, and the power and the glory. And the choir says, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Julian comes up into the light and the the, the notes in the play says that he's. He's dazzled by the light and he just, he gasps, he says, ah, and Maximus says victory. And then the, the final words of this first part in this, in this climax are the choir. And they say forever and ever, amen. And it closes. And then we go into the, the second part. Um, so it's, a, it's an incredibly intense moment, just dramatically. It's, it's, it's probably one of my new favorite moments in literature for just all of these pieces coming together and being not resolved. It's the climax right it's not the resolution being brought to such a masterful climax.
0: Yes, uh, thanks. Actually, it's an interesting thing that your favorite moment is the end of the first part because I think my favorite moment is the end of the play of the 10th the act, let's say, where he brings in Macrina, Macrina being the sister of St. Basil, And we haven't had a chance to talk about uh, the two of them. And I find it amazing. So she is a nun and she's there because he has brought them along in the campaign. And she's the person who basically closes his eyes, covers his face at the end. And I find this very interesting because the presence of women in the 10 acts is very, very minimal. Let's say there are very few women. And what follows in his realistic plays is a very equal presence of men and women. And as we know, you know, this is a play in the middle of Ibsen's oeuvre. It's a uh, 12 plays before we have and 12 plays after. And it's like a preamble for what is going to follow, this, this importance of women, preeminence of women in his realistic plays. It's almost preeminence there. So I find it very interesting that he closes the play with Macrina, this, this wonderful character. She's one of the most serene, luminous, calm, and together, as opposed to all of the tribulations that happen in Julian's mind. As this is my last Dumbarton Oaks-related activity, I would like to thank Professor Anthony Caldellis for giving me the idea of a podcast series and Judy Lee for all her hard work preparing and editing the podcasts. I really enjoyed the journey of these podcasts from Umberto Eco's Baudolino to Armenian art and from the biography of the city of Antioch to Julian's Antioch of Christian Fanatics in Emperor and Galilean. Warmest wishes to our listeners for their scholarly projects, and we hope you'll join us for more virtual Dumbarton Oaks events in Byzantine studies. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat Dumbarton Oaks by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick, Conducting.